Welcome to episode four of Ground Cover. My name is Lorraine Gordon from the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance at Southern Cross University, and today we interview Bruce Maynard, a mixed farmer from Narramine in New South Wales, who was a conventional farmer, direct drilling farmer for a decade or so, a man who was a perfectionist in seeking the truth, a broad thinker. We call him the king of no-kill cropping. From bare paddocks to diversity, from nature to nurture, Bruce Maynard today will take us on a journey. Bruce was not happy taking everything to ground zero other than whatever you were trying to grow. He wasn't happy with the monocultural approach and the simplification of the system. Current practices on his farm were at variance of where his heart and his head wanted to be in the long run. Bruce examines the need to find diversity to flourish, including economically. From a journey of being a conventional farmer to in 1994 changing his grazing management and then in 1996 moving to no-till cropping to encourage diversity, Bruce's five principles of no-till cropping include sowing being done dry, coulter type equipment which doesn't disturb or till the ground, there is no use of herbicides or chemicals or even fertilisers and grazing management has a prime place in the cropping system. From medicinal shrubs to help supplement animal diets, to mineral licks, also known as Bruce's brew, to self-herding and livestock adaptation and choice, also referred to by Bruce as a poker machine in the landscape, to stress-free stock handling, and finally grassland grains. A true practicing scientist is Bruce. Welcome to Ground Cover with your host, Kerry Cochran, proudly brought to you by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and Southern Cross University. This is a show for farmers by farmers, a uniquely Australian podcast series exploring real life stories of land managers who have undertaken the transition from conventional farming to regenerative agriculture. Each week, we'll share a unique and honest conversation about the challenges and opportunities of regenerative agriculture so you can make informed decisions about how to best manage your land. Farmers come in all shapes and sizes. Some stay with the tried and true, while others experiment and continually challenge existing norms. Today's guest is Bruce Maynard. He comes from Narromine and he fits very nicely into the latter category. He seems to be a person who constantly asks questions and seeks answers, as you're about to find out. So welcome, Bruce. Do you go along with that statement that you are a person who sifts through the chaff in order to find that grain of truth? Yes, I guess I'm endlessly trying to um, uh, head towards the truth, whatever that is, uh, realising that uh, facts are really just signposts along our journey in in life and it's a a wonderfully constantly evolving uh, journey and uh, for me I've been exceedingly fortunate in having uh, opportunities to meet with wonderful people over the years and uh, learn many wonderful things. Your journey has been an extraordinary one and I'd like to start way back in 1985 and in those days you were direct drilling and you might call yourself a fairly conventional operator. Yes, indeed we were at that stage, uh, uh, Kerry, and uh, we're doing direct drilling for about uh, 10 years and a mixed farming operation. We grew up with a lot of different livestock, including pigs and stud pigs uh, was uh, part of our 
our go as well as uh, uh, sheep and cattle cropping and irrigation cropping. So it's a, a fairly widespread and, and once again lucky landscape to learn in with lots of different things happening. So we're talking about Narramine and we're talking about how, what, what area of land? Right, 4,000 acres, Narramine. 1,600 hectares, sorry. Yep. And so you're on a sort of rotation basis back in those days? Uh, yes, in, indeed, and probably similar to um, many other circumstances, fairly ad hoc. As I went along my journey in the direct drilling days for a, a decade, we got quite consistent with keeping a, a seven-year rotation of four years uh, pasture, principally loosened, based with uh, then three years cropping and, and uh, turning around, which was recommended best practice for dry land farms in that time. But you weren't happy with that best practice practice? No, no, it was the um, uh, means to the end, but I, I still recognised that we were basically taking everything down to ground zero. The old problem with monocultures everywhere, that uh, you take away everything else other than the uh, the organism or organisms that you're you're trying to grow, whether it be plants or, or animals. And the, uh, the simplification side of things never sat at all well with the, my extensive reading. I like to read about natural things and uh, diversity and, and all of the support that that provides as a, a foundation is something that, that gradually in agriculture we've moved away from for thousands of years. So that sort of led me on a, a bit of a thought line that, well, don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have very sound reasons in agriculture for simplifying things and uh, and quite necessary in terms of business sense to make things happen on a day-to-day basis. But in the long run, that uh, is untenable for us right around the world as in uh, individually. We need to uh, find ways that we can still provide lots of opportunities for diversity to flourish while still keeping it practical and real in an economic world. I think you've defined very much where you ended up. Can we go just stay with, um, say, around about 1995? And when you looked at your landscape then, what did you notice? Uh, lots of uh, bare ground. We had uh, a lot of uh, lucerne-based pastures. So between the lucerne plants was uh, not a lot growing most of the time. And then when we were cropping with the direct drilling, which was a single pass total disturbance, well, that took out the plants that were growing there and then we would grow our, our crop. Over time and also from my childhood, the um, memories of, uh, of dust storms and raised dust and seeing small amounts of surface erosion even though we're on fairly flat land, were um, things that stuck with me. I noticed the word diversification coming up quite a lot. Now, when I look at your sort of what you've done, uh, I noticed two things sticking out for me. One was a whole farm plan done in 1991, and the other one was holistic resource management in 1997. Would you say that they were significant moments for you? Yes, certainly. I think the uh, the whole farm plan in, in particular is something I refer to quite often because they asked one good question was, well, if you were designing something for a 100-year time span, what would it look like? What would you really like it to look like? Uh, When I kept on coming back to that question consistently over time, I found that, in fact, a lot of the current practices that we did at that time were actually at variance with where our hearts and our heads said we wanted to be in the long run. So that, uh, if you like, set up a bit of a, a path of, um, of thought, if you like. And uh, also at that time, the uh, Potter Farm Plan videos came out 
uh, as well. And they really heavily influenced me at that time. And then later on, the, the grazing management in, in 94 went to um, one of the courses run by then Stan Parsons, compatriot of Alan Savory, and that was certainly a changing point. I came home and, uh, and changed our grazing basically overnight and from that point on started to see diversity emerge at the paddock level. You mentioning grazing, but I, if I look at some of your past practices, you were very much into big machinery, you know, tractors and all the big equipment that goes with cropping. Indeed, yes, yes. And uh, on a personal basis, I was never very keen on machinery full stop. Uh, machines only a, a means to an end uh, for me. Also, I had the, the fortune of um, good fortune of the end of my schooling, high schooling career was going to the US uh, on a rotary exchange in 1984. Interestingly, over there, the, the farmers, uh, even though they had many more advantages than we did in the natural and also government support and economic basis, they were going broke at a faster rate than we were here in Australia. And that stuck with me as a, as a long-term thing that the systems and the structures we set up are more important than, the, than necessarily the natural assets that we're managing at that time. So you decided to change the structure of the system. Uh, so what was the first thing you did? On return to home, there was, uh, well, a great deal of frustration for a young man is that we couldn't do much else other than to work hard at the conventional basis there for quite some time. Very high interest rates and, uh, and the first emergence of uncertain and drier seasons really meant that there was a terrible squeeze on us. For, so for a time, I had to uh, toe the line until we could afford to start to make changes. And I guess the, the first big change was in 1994 uh, when uh, we were able to change our, our grazing. Prior to that, the whole farm plan mapped out where we wanted to be, but we're only inching towards progress from that. But the uh, change in grazing management was one of the key planks to allow us to, to really start moving forward. That was happening. I dare say that came from holistic resource management. But then I noticed you started to make a name for yourself in 1996 to do with no-kill cropping. Yes, um, and that, um, as you can kind of uh, see, that uh, two years after we started our grazing, um, continuing on with direct drilling and, and monocultural cropping was not going to be tenable for me because we were seeing so much diversity emerge in our paddocks due to the change in grazing management to continue to do cropping, which took it back down to a, a zero starting point again in those paddocks was not going to be something that I could continue. Either I had to uh, take one fork in the road or the other. And so I decided that, yeah, I was happy and wanted to go down the diversity path. So uh, I literally did, I guess, uh, burn bridges or sold all of our, our large machinery in one fell swoop without really having a, an immediate answer to go forward with. But we developed up uh, no-kill cropping in early 96, partly with inspiration, but also partly by accident. Uh, and that proved to be a great breakthrough, which provided a path where you could add cropping on top of a, uh, a grazing system that was encouraging diversity. So when you say no-kill, you're not using any chemicals at all? No, no, no-kill has five uh, principles. Just quickly, the sowing is done dry. You use coulter-type equipment so you're not disturbing or tilling the ground. You um, don't use any herbicides or chemicals of any uh, sort. 
or indeed any fertiliser. And the fifth uh, principle is that your grazing management must continue to be good so it returns nutrients to your growing plants. Was there a contest, though, between the pastures that were in there and the seeds that you were sowing? If you're sowing wheat, for example, would one outcompete the other? Yes, um, uh, indeed it can. And this is one of the great system conundrums of, uh, uh, of cropping that has emerged for literally thousands of years. Most cropping uh, seeding is done uh, wet or moist. So if you think about that from the perspective of a broad acre situation, if you must only sow after the, the rains, that means that the weeds and other competitor plants have the head start on whatever you're planting in the ground. No-kill turns that around by placing seed dry in a preferred microenvironment in the ground, ready to uh, shoot as soon as rains arrive. So what do you do then, Bruce, do you, with your livestock? Are you, are you hoping to make a, a, a yield in terms of grain or are you hoping to get some feed for your livestock? It can be both. Um, No-kill cropping is more reliant upon the in-crop rainfall uh, events because it's not uh, based on a, a fallow period assumption or taking moisture forward. So whatever rain falls during that growing period is what the plant must utilise. And then, yes, you still keep every other plant component there in the field. So the other plants are using moisture as well. So the yield, the grain yields, won't be uh, as high as conventional in most circumstances that not only when we try it, but where it's done around Australia and other parts of the world, about one third of conventional grain yields is what you might be able to aim for. But uh, the total biomass is, uh, is increased uh, quite massively, usually in the order of 30 to 40%. And what effect does that increased biomass have on, say, soil carbon or on uh, the feel of the soil, if you like? Yes, a massive change uh, in all facets. It just supercharges the system without taking a backward step. Most interventions that people do, especially in the cropping sphere, involve mass ground disturbance and ma mass death of the existing plants and soil organisms and fungi and, and all the other critters underneath there in order to grow things. This is actually, if you like, you could see it as being adding cream to the cake on what you, you have and you never ever subtract anything of the whole uh, soil above and below ground biota by uh, going cropping with no kill. What effect does that have on, say, moisture holding capacity? Much increased in the visible sense and uh, by generating more uh, above ground organic matter, obviously that provides a shading and, and moisture retention role on the top, but also all of the extra channels of root growth that you promote below the ground provides channels for not only water to get in, but also air exchange to, um, uh, to operate as well. So therefore you get a, a larger volume of earth that's actually biologically active. And once again, emphasising that we aren't tilling the soil. So therefore all the little macro and micro pores that are made by little bugs uh, from microscopic size to things that we can actually see with our naked eye still remain intact so all of that functioning remains at all times whether the seasons uh, are dry or wet or anything in between you've actually uh, enhanced the whole functioning of the system and what effect has that had on say the productivity of your country um, comparing output and inputs 
Yes, uh, our inputs are drastically slashed. Uh, essentially, our external in- inputs uh, declined by 90%. That was uh, one of the big reasons that I, I got rid of all the other large machinery. And the, um, the low power requirement that no kill has means that, um, uh, that our fossil fuel use uh, only went down to one-tenth of what it was before. But our productivity in terms of uh, livestock statistics, which is the main one that we have kept, quadrupled during that that time. It has since, um, under the weight of the drastic climate shifts that we're experiencing, has declined again. But our management within that is still putting it at the top of our potential biological level of production rather than at a lesser point. So really, you've challenged uh, a traditional norm here. We think of putting fertilizers on the soil to increase productivity, but what you're actually doing is increasing productivity without the use of chemicals and simply by adding organic matter to the soil. Indeed, yes, and and providing a a cheap and easy and and non-interventionist way of getting more plant growth because whichever tools we use to achieve more plant growth, that is really what uh, farming is about. However, that is utilised as a a business yield through grains or through livestock or uh, any other fashion. It's all about growing more biomass one way or or another. So that's one of the the real beauties of of no-kill in the, the broader landscape is that here is a way to protect and keep grassland functioning right around the world but still increase the uh, both grain and livestock yields to uh, help our growing population. From 2001 through to about 2007 I suppose you got involved in a lot of tree planting with various types of ideas that you implemented. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that uh, journey there was following on from earlier experiments that were very intent upon reinstating uh, functional second and third layers. And by that, I mean that grass cover being the uh, the first layer, shrub being middle layer and tree being the top layer of our vegetation landscape. So uh, shrubs and trees were very much in our mind and how we laid them out across the landscape really determines how effective they are on being either a positive or a negative for your business case. We very much concentrated on the shrub layer because it's a missing link in lots and lots of agricultural landscapes where if you just broadly look out on lots of landscapes, you can see plenty of remnant trees and still quite a grass layer, but the shrub layer was long taken away by grazing livestock. So that was a big part of what we've done and we conducted a wide range of experiments in different uh, shapes of layouts, different proportions of shrubs and trees across our our landscape, Uh, essentially a little bit of a mini experiment farm for lots and lots of different uh, concepts. And what sort of trees fit your your design the best? Right, always uh, my answer is a large range. Um, Once again, Again, we keep on coming back to I I want as much biodiversity on the place as possible because in the end, I want as much nutrient cycling as possible to occur on my property. And the only way that can most effectively happen is by providing a a wide range of uh, vegetation types, which provide the homes for all sorts of critters, large and small, to do that recycling from soil depth. So every different plant we bring here brings 
different nutrients from different depths at different times. I'm always keen to uh, make as wide a planting choice as possible. Still a large base being the locally native and endemic species, but I'm not a, a purist in anything. So we will plant some trees that are not endemic to this area if they provide good functional and structural results for uh, our local landscape. Now, I noticed back in 2002, you were involved in advanced tree seeding. Now, that's, that's about 16 years ago, 17 years ago. So when you look at the landscape today, I wonder if you could paint a picture of uh, just what it looks like. 15% of our, our property we have in regeneration corridors and wildlife corridors. That's an interesting comparison there that when I started out in this journey, even though I could dream about having regeneration corridors, I couldn't do it from the business system that we used to uh, operate. And indeed, more broadly in these districts and others, the, uh, continually the natural last bits of natural landform that are left keep on getting impacted and people keep on cutting down trees and pushing and them and that sort of thing. And so that, to me at the heart, shows that, that those business systems, in essence, aren't profitable enough to still maintain our natural support base. Those farmers uh, that are pushing down trees at the moment are really going in the opposite direction to you. They are simplifying their landscape, whereas you, you're going in the other direction. You're planting trees and you're adding complexity to the landscape. And what you seem to be doing is creating more viable systems. And one of the products of a system, of course, is emergent qualities. And what you're finding, I think, if I'm correct, is that things are emerging that you had no idea would emerge as a consequence of what you're doing. The saying that I use is we, we try and complicate the nature on our property and simplify our business. Whereas, in fact, there's every trend and, um, uh, if you like, pressure in this modern world to actually complicate businesses but simplify the nature. So, yes, we, we do have uh, those little joys where we find new um, uh, different types of animals or plants that we haven't seen before just popping up from time to time. And that is a, a great extra joy of uh, this job. Do you think that one of the problems we have in Australian agriculture, we're getting a little bit off the topic here to a certain extent, but do you think that a lot of farmers uh, do not think in terms of systems and holistic interpretations of the landscape and tend to think in, in smaller understandings of what's happening in a more reductionist sense? Yes, I do, but I'm, I don't think it's a value judgment by saying, yes, that is the, the fact of the matter. There are very good reasons for keeping uh, or continuing to simplify uh, natural systems to grow more of the thing that the, the market continues to demand at essentially a lower and lower price. So this is a partly broader market failure, of course, because we don't value the externalities of, of what we do in an agroecological um, uh, sort of state in, in general in our industry. So while ever that uh, remains, um, yes, there will be that pressure on everybody to continue to get organisms out of the road that are especially ones that are a bit of a, a problem and uh, as fast as, uh, as possible. And that's what continues to happen at a pace, especially now that we have very efficient and effective machines able to do that in a hurry. So we're a little way through the story. There's quite a few more initiatives uh, you've undertaken. One is medicinal shrubs. And uh, that line of thought was some, uh, very fortunate to go 
to the US about a decade ago and had been introduced to uh, the work of Dr. Fred Provenza and his colleagues from Utah State University, all of the behavioural and animal dietary mixing work that they had started to uh, assemble and uncover. That really led to, uh, if you like, a, a little bit of something you might say is common sense. We're, we're seeking to get animals to supplement their diet, but do it themselves by giving them the widest range of plants immediately in front of them. Because every plant brings not only different vitamins and minerals, but it brings a wide range of, of additional phytochemicals, which are small compounds in every bite that the animals uh, take. So variety is the spice of production, if you like. Did this lead you into thinking in terms of creating a, a mineral lick? Yes and no. I guess as in conjunction with, back to the complexity versus uh, simplicity, if you like, framework there, that no matter how good we uh, could formulate uh, specific things that wouldn't provide the wide range of compounds that any individual animal might like. So one of the things we have um, done along the way is develop up the Bruce's Brew tool, which is a, a mineral lick and detoxifier, same time but that uh, should be seen in the broader place that, that that is a tool then for landscape manipulation as animals are attracted around the, the landscape. Now I understand you've been travelling through the Northern Territory and South Australia in the more arid countries. What sort of response have you had to some of these ideas to do with uh, self-herding or, or to do with licks and your ideas around livestock adaptation? Are very encouraging and um, enthusiastic responses because I guess I have been lucky enough to be a, come from a practical farming background, have that uh, idea that really there's so much good science out, out there, but it's actually implementing it on a realistic and practical basis that is often where things don't happen. The self-herding and self-shepherding uh, came about with my work in conjunction with Dr Dean Ravel from Western Australia. That was implementing a wide range of uh, behavioural sciences and also dietary um, mixing knowledge from around the world into a, a form that could actually start to solve some of the broader problems where both grazing management, also practical business management and that sort of thing, hadn't been able to achieve a, a breakthrough previously. So that is exciting and ongoing work. It's a huge new field of, of possibilities there that affect everything from landscapes to businesses to animal welfare. And it's all interlinked in a, a beautiful, self-reinforcing, positive way if we adopt right at the very start an attitude that we are going to get animals to choose what we want to have happen rather than force them to do something. And uh, that applies to the people that we're extending it to as well. So I assume that if you move these licks around the landscape, you move the livestock around the landscape too, which you know, that, that creates a sort of cell grazing system. Indeed, yes. It's, uh, it's one of the uses that you can put self-herding to, indeed. And it's uh, one of the easiest things for people to grasp. What I'd like them to imagine mostly is that we're not just setting up a, a reward station out in the field because everybody really could quickly uh, grasp that, that if you take a uh, something as simple as a self-feeder around the landscape, you'll get an attraction of, of animals around the landscape, but too expensive and too impractical to do on a widespread scale. So what we actually set up with these attractant stations is actually some
some learned behaviours, some habits which actually replicate addictive behaviours in humans. So the analogy is we set up a poker machine in the landscape that animals are attracted to, which we only occasionally have to reward with very, very small amounts of high-value rewards. Well, that, that sounds like another big topic, uh, but there's another two I want to get to <laughs> before our time is up. And one is stress-free stockmanship, which is something uh, you're very keen on. Yes, it's the level three part of the livestock animal behaviour work at this uh, point in time. Level four is um, dietary mixing and, and self-herding and self-shepherding. We've been doing that for the last uh, 20 years, taking that around and giving courses to uh, people right around Australia and also in America. It's a, a very enjoyable uh, part of what I do because of those uh, light bulb moments where you see people get a result that they've never ever been able to get before with animals in a, in a yard situation in, in particular and realise uh, what possibilities they have in the future. So it's a really quite fundamental change in uh, the relationship that you're able to get between uh, humans and animals and that overlays everything else uh, no matter what we're doing on our farms or um, or stations the human animal uh, aspect is causing even small amounts of residual anxiety in the in the animals then that is going to be something that depresses performance and on the landscape side it is also going to make the animals more prone to sticking with the familiar and not being able to make use of the whole landscape so therefore what they over impact on areas where they're familiar with and tend to under utilize areas that they're not familiar with there's some really widespread uh, implications and it feeds into the uh, to the fourth level into the uh, self-herding side as well. Grassland grain and this is your latest venture 2018. Uh, yes it's a it's a, an implementation system for, uh, for no-kill cropping basically and and so that's you know come out of the uh, long and, and arduous learning that it's uh, it's not just good enough to invent a transformative system people need the opportunity and continuing support to actually transition through to um, uh, new systems. Now, there's always a, a minority of people that will be able to make that set of changes without support, but they are by no means the majority. And uh, grassland grain is sort of an integrated system to assist people to achieve a transition to no kill cropping but also in the in the localized context that if people will be growing different things in different places and at the moment all of that uh, just goes in the case of grain into commodity based results but no kill offers the opportunity there by the grassland grain system of um, people actually getting rewarded for the local differences. So in just the same way as a, a winemaker will be rewarded for the differences in their local attributes of the produce that they make, so can gr grain growers. But you can only really have that emerge if your production system is actually growing within diversity, not simplicity. And that is a, a really big point there. So it's a good marketing tool to um, support those people who do make the journey into no-kill farming. Indeed, and there are some real possibilities for keeping rural communities going because there's a real 
differential there. There's no real need for a small wheat belt town on the edge of the wheat belt in New South Wales or Western Australia or anywhere else to actually exist unless it can show by its produce a potential source of difference. If we continue to grow crops in the standard fashion, there is no point of difference. So therefore, in the long run, there is no reason for those communities to persist. Bruce, this brings us to you and what makes you tick? What what makes you want to think so broadly about issues and to sort of uh, find a way through where many people balk at the, the blocks that are in front of them? What What is it about you that enables you to do this? Well, there's, there's a good question. Perhaps I'm, I'm the worst person to ask about that. Maybe it's, uh, it's that old combination of nature and, and nurture. Some of my forebears uh, have been involved in, in this sort of thing from great-grandfather who grew the first uh, commercial wheat west of Dubbo in the central west area here to uh, my grandfather who won the world wheat competition to going back even further to the first uh, book published in the uh, New South Wales colony was by Mr. J.W. Lewin, who was a painter and naturalist, who's a, a forebear of mine. So that's maybe the uh, the nature part of it. And then the, uh, the nurture is uh, the lucky path that I have been able to travel, meeting with really wonderful, hearted, thoughtful people that have contributed. And yeah, and I stand on the shoulders of giants. Would you call yourself a, very much a, a systemic thinker? a person who doesn't accept the simplicity of outcomes but looks for connections all the time. I would think that uh, that is correct about me. Uh, yes, a yellow, um, yellow dominant thinker and, and broad scale and, and broad view, which um, has its, its limitations as well as its, uh, its benefits. But uh, my forward-looking view at the, at the moment is that, that I do accept we're transiting uh, all of us, uh, uh, all seven uh, billion of us are transiting in a, a time of potentially extreme difficulty for us and our little part of the, the world, agriculture, will be needing to do much more for its human population but consume much less. Most of the, the systems that we see about us or are involved in aren't producing that result. So we are going to have to drive towards that in the in the long run. It just depends whether whether we turn fast enough toward that goal. Over the last four or five years, the term regenerative agriculture has really become a well-accepted term in Australia and certainly in other countries as well. Would you see yourself fitting very comfortably into that tag? Um, it's almost as like the tag caught up with you and uh, now labels you as a regenerative farmer. Yes, yes, so we were certainly using that term about 15 years ago. <laughs> um, yes, and so uh, it, it comes with its good and, and, and bad, of course. Now that it is a, a term that, that people like to use, they would like to see themselves as that. With that comes the, the good and the bad. It's, uh, it's now something that's becoming on the radar for, uh, for the general population, but also there are some dangers there as things that, that truly aren't regenerative are labelled as such. So my my fervent desire is always we we look to see the results of what the uh, these actions are in the local, uh, regional, and, and worldwide scale of whatever we're doing, and see where they they're going to head us and get us to. Bruce, uh, thank you very much for your time and your explanation of of the very many various strategies you have 
adopted over the last uh, so 20 years. Really a uh, very extraordinary input into the way the landscape should function. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kerry. Thanks for listening to Ground Cover. Hit subscribe now so you never miss an episode. And for further resources on this topic, head to scu.edu.au forward slash RAA. This podcast has been produced by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance on behalf of Southern Cross University, a collaboration designed to build a more resilient agriculture industry in Australia.